In this episode of the Carry the Load podcast, I sat down with Matt Osborne to discuss how he used his background in the CIA to fight child exploitation and trafficking. Matt discusses some close calls that will open your eyes to the alarming underworld that makes up the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, as portrayed in the box office hit Sound of Freedom. As the CEO of the organization on which the movie was based, Matt also offers some unique insight into lesser known facts about the movie, including the story's journey to becoming a film, how the movie got its name, and much more. This is not a comfortable topic, but it's one that must be discussed. So Matt Osborne, thank you very much for, uh, um, uh, for being here with us today. I'm gonna hit you right between the running lights coming out of the gate. All right. In your endeavor, uh, with the involvement of human trafficking, what is the most rewarding recovery or rescue that comes to mind when you think about all the things you've been involved in? Wow. Well, thank you, Todd. I tell you, there have been fortunately a number of rescues that I've been involved with in uh, Operation Underground Railroad and empowering law enforcement in the U.S. and around the world. But it was probably one of my first rescues in which I supported in Colombia and I was involved in some of the initial investigations and working on uh, the actual rescue that became the rescue on which the movie Sound of Freedom was based and even though I wasn't on the ground for the actual rescue I was in another city on that same day and we rescued about 20 trafficking victims it was in that initial rescue I'd helped set up and I saw the hopelessness in the kids initially as we were negotiating with the traffickers and you know we told them we're not doing anything until the party happens in a few weeks so don't even ask us to be with these kids yet right because oftentimes the traffickers say well here are the kids why don't you go try try out the goods and we're like no 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 you know it's the middleman it's the boss coming in but seeing two who particularly just looked hopeless their faces and I wanted nothing more than to break character and break role and say hey we're the good guys just hang on you know we're coming to get you uh, but you couldn't do that you had to stay in role well, just a few weeks later, to hear that they were rescued, to hear that one boy and one girl were able to get back with their families, that was back in 2014. Fast forward to today, 2023, both of them are doing amazing. They're adults. Not only are they thriving now, they are ambassadors for Operation Underground Railroad. And so to see this whole movement from victim to survivor, survivor to thriver, because I'm an internal optimist, but I'm a realist. There are many that we and others have tried to rescue and tried to help who didn't make it back all the way. These two did. And the fact that I had the opportunity to be involved in that first rescue after I left the government, that is to this day the most rewarding. So for people who haven't seen the movie Sound of Freedom, I mean, you are describing pretty closely your personal experience that you just described. That was the movie. That was the movie. That was the founding story of Operation Underground Railroad. We try to be very transparent, and I think as you and I talked a few weeks ago, that movie was pretty true up until the Colombian rainforest. I'll be the first one to say we never went running from the FARC rebels getting shot at, and you know, Special Agent Tim Ballard never killed anyone. But that whole story of a U.S. federal agent doing amazing work but because of the need to work a case where there was a U.S. nexus, was the kid American, was the bad guy American, was money passing through American banks, would this case wind up in a U.S. court of law? If the answers to those questions were yes, then in this case, Special Agent Tim Ballard, U.S. Homeland Security, could work the case. If the answer to those questions were no, 
Sorry, resource constraints, bureaucracy, jurisdiction, mm -hmm. much of what I'm sure you faced in the military. Not a bad thing, that's just the way it is. Yeah, so, you, you have to draw a line somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Taxpayer money, right? Use for, again, U.S. cases. However, that left and leaves out of the purview of the U.S. government the vast majority of children in child exploitation and human trafficking. That's why Operation Underground Railroad was formed. Mm -hmm. And that's what the movie showed. It wasn't anything bad about the U.S. government. We loved our jobs. I love my jobs at the CIA and U.S. Department of State. But to take those skills to rescue children, that was the idea. That was the struggle of our founder. That's why, again, we were founded. And then to see what we could do even with fewer resources. And as we say, you know, military term, it's the U.S. government is great, but it's like an aircraft carrier. If you can get it out of port and get it rolling, you can do some great things with mm -hmm. it. But it takes a while to turn it, doesn't it? It takes yes. a while to maneuver. Let's be a PT boat. Let's be a go-fast boat, a jet ski. And that's what we're trying to do, supporting governments. And we're just grateful we got the chance, in this case in Colombia in 2014. CBS Evening News cameras came with us. We didn't know what to expect. And as CBS News was with you, CBS News. So people can Google CBS News with Scott Pelley. The operation was Saturday, October 11th, 2014. Okay. And I don't remember the, the exact date later in that week. So was it the 14th, 15th, 16th? But if you Google CBS Evening News and Operation Underground Railroad, you'll see Scott Pelley talking about the rescue. Well, that was seen by millions, including... Alejandro Monteverde, movie director, Eduardo Verastegui, movie producer, and they said, that is going to be our next movie. Isn't it crazy how it all works out? It, it, it is. But, okay, so help, help me understand the, the movie. I mean, there's so many different things going on with the movie there. Mm -hmm. um, you've got the Tim Ballard story, which I, I think is important to, to touch on. Right. Um, you, you've got the, just the aspect of people trafficking children for sexual purposes, for personal gain, and just abusing these these innocent kids, you've got the Hollywood aspect of the movie that I'm still trying to figure out why the roadblocks were there. Mm -hmm. Your help us set the context. So, where were you involved in all of this? How did you get to that point? In you know where where uh, reality meets art, right? So joining Operation Underground Railroad after a 12-year career with the U.S. government was, again, as a big as a leap CIA of faith. agent. Right. So I was 12 years CIA, U.S. Department of State, a few tours overseas. Mm -hmm. I worked issues of terrorism against the homeland, organized crime, drug trafficking, and this thing I had never heard of back in 2006 called human trafficking. I wrote the Trafficking in, Re in Persons Report, the TIP report, for the U.S. Department of State in Madrid, Spain. And so it gets to your first party question, the fact this even exists. Todd, I'll raise my hand and say, I'm embarrassed now to say, but again, I think most people are in this boat. I thought it was prostitution back then. You remember the movie Pretty Woman, the Julia Roberts character, where it made it seem like she decided when she did it and with who and how much she charged. So I said, okay, I guess that's how people make their living in this business. Boy, was I wrong. This is trafficking. These are predators. These are pimps who are controlling these victims. And so in 2006, my daughters back then, I have two, two daughters, I have two college-age daughters. If any in your audience wonders where these uh, gray hair and the sideburns come, That's I know you're, dealing with, you're going to deal with a little bit as well with daughters. We love them. But back then they were very young. And I was thinking, holy cow, 
this is happening to their age and, and younger and older. So I didn't know at the time, but I think God was maybe putting something on my heart. Hey, you're going to do something with this. But I love my career with the CIA. Then in 2013, my good friend from graduate school, Tim Ballard, says, hey, you know, I'm a special agent with U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, I do. You know, I work child crimes. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Tell me, you know, more fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, more victims, more slaves than at any time in human history. He's rattling off these stats. And I'm like, oh my gosh, because this was about seven years now. So from 2006 to 2013, where I'm now learning, oh wow, this is what I worked back then, trafficking persons report in Madrid, Spain, now it's even worse. So I make a big leap of faith to join Operation Underground Railroad. So he called you and said, hey, I need your help. I need you to leave the CIA, come join me in this endeavor. Mm -hmm. And at that time he was Department of Homeland Security? Yes, he was Homeland Security Investigations and he had done amazing work for the US government working child crimes, internet crimes against children, working on a task force, working on something called, and isn't this a horrible term, but it's called a child sex tourism jump team, meaning a group of men and women, federal agents, who would jump into action when they would get information about a child sex tourist from the United States. So that's what's interesting in Sound of Freedom, for those of you who watched it, that they're researching the case. They see that it's two Honduran kids in this case, but that they were being trafficked across the border. Special Agent Tim Ballard worked a case very similar to that. He saw how prevalent this was. So he starts explaining his decision to leave the U.S. government, the safety of the U.S. government, and to join an organization, or sorry, to start, he was going to start an organization that would empower governments around the world, that would give them what he didn't have, even as a U.S. special agent. He didn't have enough funding. Who does, right? Mm -hmm. Training, tools, technology. And yet he was going to do that to empower law enforcement overseas. So as I always say, he was the brave one. He quit cold turkey. He had, I think, six kids back then. I just have the two kids. And I remember saying, wait a sec, Tim. Uncle Sam pays me faithfully twice a month. I have a government pension waiting for me. Just six years. If I just stick it out six more years, I had enough time overseas to get the first special. You remember the Federal Employment Retirement sure. System? And I will have government health care till the day I die if I just stick it out these six years. I mean, say what you want about healthcare in the U.S., but federal government employees in the U.S. get fantastic healthcare. And I said, you want me to leave all of that and join an organization where my paycheck comes in only if the donations came in that month? Right. And he said, yes, that's exactly what I want. I would have liked, I would like to be able to tell you, Todd, that I'm like, absolutely, I'm in it for the cause. I said, let me think about it. Talk to my dad. He said, don't do it. Wait six years and then do whatever you want. No companies give a pension anymore. I talked to my wife now of 25 years, but you can imagine that was about 10 years ago. And she said, I, I, I guess I support you if, if you think you want to take that risk. And then I came back to him. I said, well, you tell me when you're up in the air here. I don't know if I can do this startup thing. So he calls me a few months later, July of 2014. And he says, all right, we're down the runway. We're lifting off. And that was enough for me. And so I joined. But back to your initial question of how it all came in with the Hollywood. Tim Ballard is a huge student of American history, loves Civil War heroes, right? Harriet Tubman, Harriet you know, Jacobs, and, and, and Frederick Douglass, and Abraham Lincoln. And he knows from his studies that the Civil War was really 
won in the end by the storytellers, by Harriet Beecher Stowe writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, raising awareness of this horror of slavery that galvanized the North more than states' rights ever could. So he said, what if we put together documentaries? What if we put together movies to be, and again, with all due respect, and, and not, I'm sorry, not, you know, not, no cultural appropriation, no nothing, but we're actually tipping our hats to those heroes of the Civil War era. We want to be the modern day Harriet Beecher Stowe's. So I said, okay, how are you going to do that? And he talked about documentaries. And so that's initially what we started to do. And we have a number of documentaries available. But it was what I mentioned, just the luck or fortuitous or divine, whatever you want to say or believe, that CBS Evening News follows us on that operation in October 2014, has CBS Evening News with Scott Pelley, seen by a producer and director. And yet, even then, that was 2014, and I think we can go deeper if you want, because you sort of asked, how is it that Sound of Freedom didn't come out until 2023? Yeah, and, and that, so I didn't understand the aspect of CBS Evening News. Um, I think, and you know, you, that's kind of in the same boat as 60 Minutes. Correct. And they're both very, um, uh, pretty trusted sources of mm -hmm. information, whether you're conservative, whether you're not. Um, there, people have a tendency to believe those. So, right. when when CBS Evening News gets a hold of something like this, which again I didn't realize that that, that had been the case, mm -hmm. but I knew that there was a lot of pushback against the publication of this movie. Right. And I know that a lot there are a lot of conspiracy theorists that think people didn't want it out there because they immediately tie it to the Weinsteins and the, and the Epstein, or, yeah, Epstein, Epstein and Harvey Weinstein as well, but Epstein. So what was it? I mean, being on the inside, can you give, can you give people a, a true inside understanding? Why did Hollywood push back on this? 2017, the script was written by Alejandro Monteverde, and he would go on to say it took probably longer than it should have because he's a perfectionist, and he took time to get everything ready, and I'm glad he did because it's such a well-written script. The movie rights were originally sold to 20th Century Fox. 20th Century Fox, in my mind, did something brilliant. They cast the, the parts using the most famous actors and actresses from a number of Latin American countries. So Giselle, the female trafficker, my understanding is she's a famous actress from Cuba. The guy who plays Fuego, Manny Perez, famous actor from Dominican Republic. You had famous actors from Colombia. You had the actual Colombian agent, um, Jorge Reyes. He's actually a Spaniard, so from Spain. Knowing that, thinking ahead, that this movie that's already they knew was going to be half Spanish, half English, that this movie would have huge reach throughout Latin America. So I was on set in 2018 watching Jim Caviezel throw himself into this role. I had a feeling, and I knew nothing about movies, had a feeling this was going to be very powerful. Well, I don't know if it was in later 2018 or 2019, but Disney buys 20th Century Fox. And then what I heard was Disney shelved the movie, said, we don't want to show it, this isn't a priority. I don't know why. I mean, people speculate that's part of the conspiracy theory. Maybe they didn't want to do a movie about child sexual exploitation and human trafficking. Maybe there are other reasons, I, I don't know. But the movie sort of languished. And we tried with Netflix, we tried with Amazon Prime, we tried with Sony, other studios. And I wasn't involved in these discussions, but just hearing second, third hand, there just wasn't a lot of interest. Until finally, Angel Studios, 
known for the chosen, known for their uh, crowdfunding platforms, pay it forward. They saw it and they said, this is a movie we can get behind because of the subject matter that we need to tackle it head on because of the, the, you know, the positive effect we can have in the fight against child exploitation and human trafficking. So did they buy it from, from Disney then? So that I don't know. Somehow they were able to acquire the rights and they then began just in May of this year, began to publicize for a July 4th weekend opening. And it was only supposed to be for 13 days. I think July 3rd through maybe the 16th. And they had a number of theaters that were ready to show it. Well, as you probably remember, and your audience will remember, it quickly became the number one movie. Mm -hmm. It beat Indiana Jones. It beat Mission Impossible. It was surprising movies until I think it was Barbie movie who took it down. But after a while, and that, and it just became this There's huge phenomenon. There's a lot phenomenon. of irony in that. And, and, I, and I, don't, I don't mean that in just a, a comedic way, but there's right. still a lot of irony in, in Barbie taking down this movie. Right. But it had a huge run already. And then that was only domestic and then went international. So it is, okay, so a couple of questions there to follow up with. We, or clarifications. We know that, that the facts are it was rolling until it got to Disney. Mm-hmm. No accusation there, Correct. but, but the, the fact of the matter is Disney did not like it for whatever reason. Correct. They shelved it. Yep, that's my understanding. So the, and then the question which we don't know the direct answer to is whether or not they sold it to Angel. So regardless, though, they no longer had any say in it. I would assume they sold it. It's the only way I would I, I right. can, uh, make that leap. So for, for conspiracy theorists, it, it may not be as simple as... Well, you know, if Disney really didn't want it to get out, they probably wouldn't have sold it. They probably would have helped. I mean, I would assume. Correct. So, okay, going back to the the uh, uh, the Hispanic influence in this, mm -hmm. what, what did these guys want to tell this story and and push this into the um, into these other uh, countries because those are countries that are ravaged by this from a, a child standpoint more than others. I know the United States will talk about the United right. States as a consumer of it, but the victims, are they mainly from these countries that they were playing to? We really tried to keep this a very true story in terms of the founding of Operation Underground Railroad. And a lot of the criticism has been, this has been way blown out of proportion or none of this happened. I'm here to tell you it very closely mirrored what first of all happened to special agent tim ballard with homeland security with a little bit taken out of context so just real quick an example so there are two cases in the movie u.s cases of u.s perpetrators traffickers and we can say call them that we don't have to say alleged or suspected because they were tried and convicted so oshinsky and bachman were the were the characters names in the movie they're actually based on two real uh, traffickers, Lupachensky and Buchanan, that were actual cases. In real life, those two cases weren't linked, but for you know the ease and the script, those two were linked. So does that make sense? So these are true cases, but they you know but they were linked. So some people say, well, that didn't happen. Well, no, it definitely did. Well, then our first cases for Operation Underground Railroad started with the cases that Tim Ballard was working with Homeland Security, and that was in Colombia, Cartagena, Bogota, Colombia, elsewhere. So we knew much of the movie was going to be set there because that's where it taken place. 
and we knew the movie was going to be filmed there because Fox Latin America, 20th Century Fox's subsidiary Fox Latin America, had the studio set up. It was a lot cheaper to, to, um, to set up there. But the action was going to take place where it actually did with OUR uh, and Tim Ballard, on the border between Mexico and the U.S., in Central America, and in Latin America. The producers and directors then said, okay, we think that we can have a movement an anti-slavery movement in the United States, but we also can do it throughout Latin America, not necessarily because it's worse there than elsewhere, but because we can take advantage of the fact that these cases happen in Latin America, and as I mentioned earlier, the most famous actors in these different countries who could then bring people in their countries to the theater, which is, excuse me, what we saw throughout August and September when this movie went through Latin America and then worldwide. Give people I want to go back to the original question that I asked you, and you referenced these two young children. Give people an idea of the profile of these kids. And, and before I, I let you answer that, I, the, the very subject of this is so incredibly disturbing. You don't have to be a parent to be disturbed by this, just to know that one human being could do this to another human being, and then to know that they're children. Give people an understanding of what that profile is that y'all are saving. And even to start, I would say that I don't blame anyone for thinking that maybe this doesn't exist or it doesn't exist to the degree that, that we and others have said. And I'll just take it back to, again, as I mentioned at the outset, 2006, I'm in Madrid, Spain. I'm asked to write the Trafficking in Persons Report. I think it's prostitution. I think these girls and boys are volunteers, these men and women. That was my first opportunity to meet with survivors. And in my case in Spain, the survivors had been brought from Eastern Europe, Central Europe by Russian mafias to be pimped out and exploited in Madrid. Yes, in your table dance bars and strip clubs, but also in massage parlors, nail salons, online escorts. And meeting with these women mostly and girls and hearing their stories, I mean, they weren't making it up. So I knew that this was happening. But it wasn't until I started leading rescue operations with Operation Underground Railroad, always at the behest of local governments where, who tell us, hey, go to this tourist area, go to these beaches, these bars, these red light districts. You don't even have to ask for it. You'll be offered it within minutes. I thought, no way, that doesn't happen. And sure enough, go to a beach and a guy comes up selling you everything from a shell necklace to a pack of cigarettes to a parasail or para, you know, stand-up paddle ride to drugs, to girls, just like that. And he wasn't the trafficker himself, but if you said, well, I'm, I'm interested in having a good time. What kind of girls do you have? Oh, well, here, let me make a call. And within 30 minutes, one hour tops, I'm sitting across the table like you and I are sitting now, and there is a trafficker, men mostly, but also females, bartering the health, the freedom, the life of a child, of a human, as if they were casually talking about a sack of potatoes, bag of limes. It weighs this much, it costs this much, it'll do that much. And I was horrified. On 26 different occasions now with Operation Underground Railroad, I have led investigations in different countries. Not once, Todd, have I not been offered kids. Is that not crazy? Not once. And why is it unfortunate? It's the American face. It's the Western face. Americans are the number one consumer and producer of what we used to call child pornography. Now we call it child sex abuse material. 
This is what Tim Ballard had told me because he was working these cases as a special agent. I didn't believe it until I went to these countries. And yes, I went to Central America, South America, Caribbean, but I've been to Asia. I've been in places like that where it's the same thing. This is everywhere. And then to the US, it also exists. Yes, in New York City and Los Angeles, but in Dallas and in small towns because of the demand. I hope we'll get a chance to talk about that as well because unfortunately, too many men out there don't realize or don't want to realize that this is trafficking, this isn't prostitution. These women and men, these boys and girls, aren't there of their own free will and accord. Even if they think, you know, they sign up for this job, you don't have to go too far back in their life to see something bad has happened to them, something exploitative has happened to them. And that's what I'm, we're hoping to, to rally the good men out there. And that's what I love too about Carry the Load and everything that represents, the good men in our country and around the world to not be part of the problem. That's just the floor. Let's be part of the solution. Okay, so walk people through, you know, you talked about sitting across from somebody and being offered, you know, children. The simple mind like mine looks at it and says, you accept and then as soon as you get the child, you, you know, they're safe and you run. Right. Is it that simple? Unfortunately not. Um, because we also want to make sure to protect the child and we also want to make sure we can take down the networks. So I'm glad you asked that question. So first thing to back up is for everyone to realize and know. So Operation Underground Railroad is not a vigilante organization. We have no arrest authority. We have no authority to operate in these countries unless given that authority by the host government. So we have to get permission first. We go through the front door always. And how does that happen? Well, in our early days, they were federal law enforcement partners in areas where Tim had worked, Haiti, Dominican Republic, Colombia, or where I had worked, Mexico, Venezuela, Spain, or when some of our other operators had worked in different countries. That gives us sort of the connection, if that makes sense. Then we introduce, as we say, it's an a la carte menu of services we provide thanks to our donors and donations. We can provide straight funding if they need it to pay for task force or to pay for cell phones. We provide equipment, cell phones, laptops. Some of these law enforcement agents, think about Dominican Republic. The, F, the equivalent of an FBI agent in the Dominican Republic, oftentimes he or she doesn't have enough money for a burner phone. So they're using their own personal cell phones to talk to the bad guys. We come in and give them a slew of burner phones. It seems simple, but they literally have no budget for that. And they're able to do that. We provide and a burner phone is untraceable. That's, exactly. That's the importance of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. A burner phone is something where then they can't be traced back so that the bad guys couldn't find their address, right? Because corruption, they could go to the, you know, the cell phone equivalent, let's say, you know, T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon, whatever it is in that country. And again, with enough money buying off the people, hey, that number here, I need to know who bought that. And they can go and trace it back. So now with these burner phones, they're clean, law enforcement can use them. So we provide a la carte menu, but oftentimes overseas, we offer up the American face. We say, if you sign us up as confidential sources of information, as you sign us up as informants, and you don't have to pay us anything, we pay everything. Either you know where the bad guys are and the traffickers, and you tell us and we'll go bump into them and, and elicit information. Or oftentimes the countries would say, look, we know that there's trafficking. For instance, in Cancun, we talked to the Mexican federal police. We know there's exploitation and trafficking, but our president right now only gives us the mandate to go after the narco criminals, organized crime, 
homicides, gun runners, kidnappers, and way down the list is trafficking. Well, we offer to come in and spend a few days and gather all the information, intelligence. Trafficking is way down the list? In many countries because of the severity of crimes in these countries. So think about Mexico. What would you think would be the number one crime, right? The narco-trafficking right. criminals. And even though a lot of times it is linked, yeah. there's just not a knowledge about human trafficking. There's a desire, but not always a will to fight this. Well, we come in with resources to take away that problem of, of the will, lack of will. We give them the will because they don't have to expend anything. They expend no resources until a few days later we present to them, it's this person here, here's his name, here's his ID, here's the money. Because if we're sitting, you know, let's say you and I are sitting having a beer at a beach sidebar and someone comes, hey, gringos again, you know, like it's a parasail jet ski, drugs, girls. Well, I don't know. We got some buddies coming in next week. What kind of girls? Oh, I got anything you want. Uh, okay, well, you know, let's see ages. And they, once we believe that he's the real deal, we'll say something as simple as, hey, this is cool. You know what? We'll give you a hundred bucks for your time. Was Western Union okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. Here's my ID. Here's my number. Here's my address. Because they, they have no way. Would they ever think that we're working with cops? So you guys are, are pretty much still operating, you know, based on your CIA background, you're still operating in an intelligent intelligence gathering world correct you're turning that information over to the local authorities so they can always. take them down always yeah we have no arrest authority arrest authority but we give them the information but how concerned are you that the corruption goes to there as well and you turn that information over over and nothing happens yeah that's always a worry sometimes that's happened but for the most part the law enforcement acts on it and here's why Remember we said earlier that the U.S. government, let's say FBI overseas, Homeland Security overseas and the embassies, they can't work a case if it doesn't have a U.S. nexus. Same resources, constraints that uh, Tim Ballard and others had in the U.S. Well, they can help us by saying, work with that law enforcement unit, they're really good. Don't work with that one. There have been some questions of human rights violations or corruption. Hey, that woman, she's an amazing prosecutor. If you bring her case, she'll try it. Hey, that guy, we think he's in with the traffickers. So they'll help us narrow it down. So we work with the best of the best in each country. Then we meet with them ahead of time and say, what do you need? For instance, Prosecutor X in Thailand, what do you need to have a case where you can try? Oftentimes she or he will say, okay, we need to have actual sex acts being discussed. Here's what they'll do and prices for X amount of money. They need to at least show you the victims so you can see, make sure they're actually real human beings there. Then when we set up the operation, you have to actually exchange money. I'm just using an example, but with those three things, that's probable cause in, in that country. So we know already what the minimums are. We lay out the operations plan, they accept it, they sign off on it, then we get signed up, you know, two thumbprints, passports. Now, that's a little nerve wracking, right? We're giving our information. Well, we're working with units vetted by the US government doesn't mean you eliminate risk, but you reduce risk as much as possible. Secondly, what are we doing? Those were the early days where we were sending teams over. Wasn't as effective and efficient with donor money. So now we're building bases overseas in Southeast Asia, where for the price of what it would fly you and me to go all the way over to Bangkok, work a week or two intelligence gathering, fly back for that money. We're funding an office for one month of 23 or 24 Thai nationals who are working at decent salaries for their country, and yet they're providing, there's an investigator, there's a, a lawyer, there's a social worker, child forensics analyst, open source. So that's what we're trying to do. And then that builds trust 
so that it's not us anymore saying, hey, will you work with us? Will you work with us? Will you work with us? It's these countries saying, will you work with us? And that's how we've evolved in nine years. So a lot of what you describe, you know, especially like, you know, the two gringos sitting at the, uh, you know, at the poolside bar. I remember uh, uh, I deployed to uh, Phuket, Thailand back mm -hmm. in 97. Um, and I remember as we pulled out of the port and we were talking about just how utterly crazy things were there. Um, I remember saying to someone, wow, prostitution is a way of life there. Because we were amazed at how some of the uh, families were literally trying to get you to take their, their daughter. Mm -hmm. You know, we, you know, we, we kind of joked about it. And looking back, I'm, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed at my lack of knowledge. But, you know, we used to say, you know, they want you to take them to the big PX in the sky, right? And I, I think what I'm hearing is that it, it was such a way of life and there was so much danger. They were trying to get their daughter out of that environment because they knew they could easily be sucked into it. Is that, am, am I way out of bounds talking about all this? No, I think you're right. And there are a couple ways of looking at it. And that's heartbreaking how many times we see fathers and brothers pushing, right? Daughters and sisters to Westerners, to Americans, for instance, either to try to get quick buck off them or to see if they could win the lottery, right? The green card lottery, mm -hmm. because they know that they have no real hope in their countries. Even Phuket, which as you know, is a beautiful area, tourist area. Like, and yet think about the lack of economic opportunities. And when you mentioned earlier, what is the profile of a trafficking victim look like? I don't, I didn't answer that as well. And I want to answer it now is overseas. It is because of these lack of opportunities. It's, there's just not, not jobs out there. And oftentimes mothers are selling their children into this or uncles are trying to make a quick buck. I mean, it's horrifying because that's the only way they see to make money. So what we try to do with our aftercare program is to educate, to try to give another chance. But yet you're really fighting up against these sort of cultural roadblocks. I mean, again, I talk about fathers and brothers here, daughters and sisters bringing in Southeast Asia a couple years ago, I'll never forget being in a little remote area where it was known to be the red light district. And you would have these guys bringing these girls on the backs of mopeds, dropping them off to work the night and then picking them up the next day. And someone said to us, well, you're here to help and fight human trafficking. Are you going to save every single one of them? We said, we'll do our best, but we're not going to focus on those we can't get to. We're going to focus on those who we have been able to. And we've had a lot of success educating. And I think it goes yeah. to what you're saying, too. There wasn't anything wrong about you not knowing in Phuket, just like I didn't know in Madrid, Spain. To be clear, I didn't participate in it. No, no, absolutely. But, no, 100%. But, but meaning I, you didn't know. And you said, remember, you said, I wish I would have known. I said the same thing. I wish I would have known. But now we know. And now opportunities like this to get this message out. I think that's the long-term solution. Education. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the other thing you, you mentioned that I think people are just kind of, you know, innocent of, like you said, you thought when you first heard about this that this was willing prostitution. Absolutely, Julia and Roberts, so, pretty so woman. So you go back to those, you know, to to the two gringo comment. Um, you know, like people go down to Mexico all the time. They'll take bachelor parties down there, mm -hmm. and somebody says, "Hey, you know, we've got these opportunities here." What I'm hearing you say is that as innocently as as it can be, these guys could be participating in something that they think the girls are willing participants. Mm -hmm. And yet they're just feeding the machine. Exactly. 
creating the demand. Too many men think it's an equal trade, a business negotiation. I want her body, she wants my money, this is how she's chosen to make her living. We're trying to get the word out that in the vast majority of cases, that's not true. Either she's being forced into it, or either she believes she has no other options because of the economic situation, or because she thinks she can make a quick buck. Well, on the men's side, and I'm the first one to admit, I'm you know 51 years old. Uh, I went to bachelor parties in my late teens and certainly early 20s and mid-20s. I wish I would have known then, but now I know. So all we can do now is talk about this need to educate that really think hard before you are going to go and sexually exploit another person in the U.S. or around the world, because likely that's what you're doing. And so I'm grateful that you, you pose that question. And again, I put myself back you know, in this 30 years ago. I wish someone would have educated me. Now we have an opportunity to talk about things like this. So where is all of this going? I mean, there, there's, how does, it feels like, first of all, actually, before I even go there, I want to back mm -hmm. up a step and talk a little bit more about trafficking in general. Mm -hmm. There is sex trafficking, which we've, which we've pretty much focused on, yes. but there's another very significant kind of trafficking and that's for, for labor. Is for, that correct? Not only is it very significant, that is actually the vast majority of slaves today are in a forced labor situation. Can, we, you, can you give a, a greater example of that so that people can, can relate to what you're saying? Oftentimes I say it's, think actually 18th century United States in some countries. There are actually people who are you know, chained up or tied up overnight, whether literally or figuratively because they have no way of getting out, and they are marched to the fields to work. Examples we've seen are in the border region between the Dominican Republic and Haiti. A number of Haitian boys between the ages, let's say, of 8 and 18, who either don't know where their parents are or have been kidnapped or the parents sold them into this, they're marched every day over the border in Dominican Republic for sugarcane, avocados, probably other couple products there. Think about textiles, clothing, factories. But here's the important thing. Not just in China, not just in Thailand. But I can guarantee you that in California, in some areas, there are migrant workers who are being exploited. Maybe they're not getting paid at all, but most likely they're being paid some sort of quote unquote slave wages. I'm sure in Texas, where we are now, if you were to look, the University of Texas, now again, this is old now, 2016, 2017, they estimated there were 373,000 trafficking victims currently in Texas at that time, a majority, maybe 60% being forced labor. So this does exist. It's not what Operation Underground Railroad focuses on. We choose to focus on commercial sexual exploitation. But I'm glad you mentioned this because this is the vast, this is where the vast majority of slaves today are being held. And I know that's kind of crazy because some people would think, well, no, 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 in my history book, slavery ended with Abraham Lincoln. That's certainly what I used to believe. Legal slavery. Legal slavery, exactly. So, yeah, by those numbers, 2016, 2017, the majority, let's just say uh, just over half, that means back then about 160,000 people were here against their will working uh, in some form or fashion to feed the U.S. economy, certainly mm -hmm. the Texas economy. And we know that over the last eight years, that has absolutely grown. Right. And so, I mean, it's just, it's hard to fathom that, that there are people 
working against their will, even in the United States. Mm -hmm. We know that it goes on around the world, but is there is there a way to spot this? Is there a way? I mean, are there organizations like yours that go specifically after the laborers? Because it sure seems like the border is letting a lot of that in right now. Right. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring up the border as well for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, it is a huge issue. But I've heard in speaking events that I give oftentimes in the United States, well, isn't it true now with the open border, that's fueling the sex trade, the illegal sex trade? Well, probably you have so many people coming over who don't have a lot of resources or are easily vulnerable and exploited. But the vast majority of trafficking victims in the United States are American citizens. They are those who are vulnerable. The victims. The victims themselves are American citizens, American girls. If you're going to most brothels, and not people going to brothels, but if you think who is being exploited, massage parlors, table dance bars, others around the country, they're mostly American citizens. However, the more illegal immigrants are coming over the border, the more you will see this type of trafficking. Another thing I want to point out is, oftentimes people come here willingly and are then exploited. So you said you're being held against their will. Others would say, well, no, we brought them over. We got their passports, their visas. We paid for their airfare. We paid for all these things to bring them to the U.S. Yes, illegally we had to bribe, and now they have to pay off that debt. Well, how are they paying off that debt? Sweatshop labor, working in the fields, or being forced to work in strip clubs, brothels, or online exploitation. So does that make sense? Were they here willingly? Well, yes, initially they were, but now they're being exploited and they're being held against their will. So... You, you surprised me a little bit with the majority are uh, American citizens mm -hmm. are American citizens. Immediately what I thought of, uh, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, the young girl goes missing from the, the Dallas, Dallas Mavericks, Mavericks game, game. Yes. And then was recovered up in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma. City. Mm -hmm. Was that a, was that a sex trafficking case? Yes, it absolutely was. And that is a, an emblematic case for a lot of reasons. This woman, and again, I'm not an expert. I know a few things that we read in the papers and a few people who are involved in the case. She was from a rather well-to-do family, not too far from here. So again, the stereotype. How old was she? Uh, my understanding was 15 years old. Okay. Not a person down on her luck necessarily, not someone you know living under a bridge, but like so many of trafficking victims, there were vulnerabilities. There's maybe a need for love. There's a need for excitement. But I use my two daughters as an example, Todd. I think I gave them a great childhood. One's in college in Fort Worth. One's in college in Tennessee, 21 years old, 18 years old. I think I gave them everything. But they have seemed real susceptible to social media sometimes. Dad, look at this. I could make money going on this, this app. Or all I got to do is just send some pictures of me. It doesn't have to be anything bad, Dad. But right, I mean, they're even thinking about this. So imagine someone who is not as educated or doesn't know about these dangers. They're easily taken in by people on social media, people they meet. And my understanding is, is that this girl at the Mavericks game, just sitting up, you know, maybe during a timeout, kind of looking over her shoulder, looking around, that she made eye contact with a guy one um, level up who was in a box, kind of motioned to her, you know, let's, let's go meet outside. So she, the girl says, Dad, can I go to the bathroom? And he's like, yeah, okay. And then she went. 10 minutes goes by, 20, 30 minutes. He's like, well, let me go check. Well, then she was gone. Security cameras that night showed her going willingly out with him, not being pulled, not being forced. 
I don't know the details of what was said there, but it was assumed that he offered her something. Was it drugs? Was it party? Was it something? Just come outside. I have it in my car. Whatever he said was convincing enough for her to take a big risk that she didn't realize she was taking. She leaves. Then there was just a snafu of issues between the Mavericks and Dallas police and the nearby town where she was, of whose jurisdiction it was. Just in that hour or two that was lost, understanding is she'd already been passed into another trafficking ring and within days wound up in Oklahoma City. But that case is important because it can happen to any of us, any race, any socioeconomic level. These traffickers know where the vulnerabilities are. They will go, I guarantee you right now, middle of the day here, middle, you know, weekday, there are groomers out there looking at a mall, Galleria, dart bus stations, so the Dallas area rapid transit, movie theaters, Walmarts, looking for out of place. Like I said, you know, midday, huh, there's a girl looks like she's a teen. Why isn't she in school today? Let me go investigate. Hey, how are you doing? You look like you're down. Do you need anything? Hey, you know, if you ever get in any trouble, here's my phone number. Well, chances are she had a fight with her mom, ran away from home, latchkey kid, maybe looking for adventure, looking for love, drop out of school, whatever it is, those traffickers are insidious to get those vulnerabilities because they realize if they can just lure someone in their trafficking ring, how much money they can profit off of them. And that and oftentimes is the way the trafficking is happening in the U.S., I want to I want to uh, take a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to talk about the economics of it because I think that's a really really important thing for people to understand. Yeah. Um, it's it's gut wrenching, um, just hearing that story, having a 15 year old daughter. Yeah. It's um, it, it it makes one very angry mm-hmm. and very scared all at the same time, but. Um, Let's take a a break and then come back and talk about that. Thank you. All right. So before we, before we broke, we kind of, we kind of teased everybody with the, the aspect of the economic side of things, Mm -hmm. because when we talked offline in, in our kind of a pre-meeting, you made a comment about how economically lucrative in the sense of capitalism that this is. Right. Now, I say that, and then I almost want to take those words right back because this is not what capitalism is all exactly, about. Exactly, yeah. But give people a sense of the economics. You can break it down in really simplistic form. How many times can you sell a bag of cocaine? One How time. many times can you sell a human being over and over again? That's why this is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. It's already eclipsed the illegal arms trade. Some believe it will eclipse the illegal drug trade. And the illegal arms trade? has already been well eclipsed by the human trafficking trade. Because again, a gun can be resold obviously to other places, but that one time the person produces the gun, gets hold of it and sells it once. If you control a human being, you can sell her or him over and over again maybe 10 times a day, 15 times a day or more, profiting off of them every single time. How do you even fathom that? I mean, you're, you're somebody who's involved in this 
how do you compartmentalize these things? I mean, you're, you're dealing with the worst of the worst, the scumbags of the earth, and then you go home to a loving family. How do, you, how do you compartmentalize it? So my wife now of 25 years, I'll never forget, 10 years ago when I was going to leave the U.S. government to join Operation Underground Railroad, she said, you know, you think you're this big CIA guy, you've done all this stuff around the world, you know, this, this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever had to do. And I think I probably, you know, got my back up and said, are you kidding? The CIA, they taught us how to compartmentalize and go to that special place and be different people than who we are. And it was the first time, and ironically, as you re we mentioned, it was in Cartagena, Colombia, leading up to Operation Triple Take, which would become the Sound of Freedom, the beach rescue. And I'm sitting across the table from a trafficker. And he says in Spanish, he brings two girls out of a back room. And they were very young, I remember. And he says in Spanish... How young? Well, he says in Spanish, she's 13 years old and she's 12 years old. And then he turns to me and he says in Spanish... They have zero kilometers on them. They're virgins. And they're going to be a special price for, or special prize for your boss who was going to come in a few weeks. That was the setup. So that's what he said. And simultaneously, I wanted to reach out and strangle him. I wanted to throw up and, and go in a fetal position and cry. And then I remembered, though, I got to stay and roll. So I'm like, absolutely, that's perfect. That's going to be perfect for the boss man. And you know what came to the back of my mind were my wife's words. Wow, honey, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do because of what you just mentioned. How do you compartmentalize that? So we have oftentimes with our operators, many of them former military. And so you think back to the training you had both pre and, 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 and during your operational deployment, but then post, right? How do you deal with that trauma? And so we're oftentimes talking to our men mostly, but also the women who go on these ops that how do you deal with that? Because there are those who you can rescue and that's euphoric and you're excited. You're able to help them, help them get back to their parents or into vetted aftercare homes. What about those you weren't able to save? Or what about those who went right back into it? That is in a lot of ways the trauma. And then I'll add one more trauma here. How about the trauma of seeing what I've seen? And again, I don't compare it to what you've seen and Marines and other special forces, but going undercover and just seeing the worst of humanity, bartering these kids, selling these kids, and then to come home to my wonderful wife and daughters, and it's nothing, no fault of them, it's just perspective. And one time I came home from a particularly difficult operation, and I walk in the house, and I'm emotional, and I hug and kiss everyone, and my daughter, who was then 15 years old, says, Dad, this was the worst day of my life. Oh my gosh, honey, what happened, what happened? She says, my iPhone screen got a crack in it and I don't know what to do. So you can imagine that kind of trauma where I'm like, oh my gosh, am I failing as a parent? Again, not blaming them, but yet how do you live in, these both, in both worlds without bringing work home, but also educating your kids? And I know you have kids of different ages and a 15-year-old, but how do you educate them on what's really important in life and what their friends in society are telling them is important? So what you're talking about is perspective. Yeah. So we talked earlier about the perspective of those who grow up in like Phuket, Thailand, mm -hmm. where prostitution is a way of life. Right. Um, are we judging? Now I'm, I'm going to ask the question. I, I know my own answer, but yeah. I think it's a fair question to ask. 
when you talk about perspective, are we judging those who are involved in this in what we deem to be negative, what we certainly know to be negative based on, on God's teachings? Right. Are, are we judging them on, on too narrow of a perspective or are they just, it's what they know and they're surviving? Yeah. You know, that's a good one. I've oftentimes thought of it as well because we've had not only survivors we've helped through intervention to get out of their situation. Some have gone back into it saying, that's just how I'm going to make my living. Or you get me into this aftercare home and I have all these rules and restrictions and they're trying to train me for a job where, let's just use an example, I make 15 bucks an hour where I could make five to eight times that doing what I was doing, forget that, I'm going back into it. I'm not gonna judge them even though I'm trying to let them know there's another way and our aftercare team tries to give them tools and skills for other jobs. And am I judging that sex buyer because back in the day when I went to strip clubs and bachelor parties, I didn't know. I'm not judging them but I'm trying to educate mm -hmm. so that then they would know. Because we have a phrase, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. My mind didn't know back then as I'm here at a bachelor party thinking, well, I guess this is how they want to make their living. If I would have known that likely there was something bad in their past that has led them to be in this exploitative situation. So I don't know if that answers your question, but the ones I do judge are the traffickers who are profiting off of this, the criminal networks. They're not doing anything other than somehow forcing or frauding or defrauding or coercing someone into this and then they just sit back while they make money after money, you know, hour after hour after hour profiting off them. So, so we, we talked about the, the profile of the victim. Mm -hmm. What about the profile of the perpetrators? Mm -hmm. Not, not just the buyers, but also the sellers. Correct. Um, is it, we don't even think about what happened in their life leading up to that point. So, so start with the profile of of the uh, of the bad guys mm -hmm. the ones that we look at and again just inherently that's just that's wrong yeah were they probably a part of that system growing up and to them it's just it just is what it is we oftentimes say the traffickers making a business decision he or she again i would say most traffickers probably he but there's quite a few who are she and females they're making business decision that this is a low risk, high reward proposition. High reward because of what we talked about. How many times per hour can you sell someone? Two to three times an hour, let's say, profiting off of them. High reward. Low risk, is anyone really going after us? Is there really law enforcement out there? They certainly don't feel that. And that's why at Operation Underground Railroad, we said, look, you're not gonna solve this overnight. There are always gonna be you know, perverts and people out there who are trying to you know, do things, they have different proclivities, and you're always gonna have people trying to sell. But we can make the risk side really risky. So that's one area where we're working. Then your question is very important. Are there any though who maybe that's all they knew or they grew up on? So I don't know how good the cameras are. You see OUR, it's a broken chain. We oftentimes, with our motto, say let's break the chain mm -hmm. because what we've seen in some of our intervention operations, we will help law enforcement arrest a trafficker, truly someone who has been, is pimping and exploiting human beings. But when you interview them, you find out they themselves were prostituted out. They themselves were trafficked out at a very young age. They were exploited. Then they survived a number of years and they realized, huh, if I can bring in others to the network, if I can recruit them, 
then the, the pimp, the head trafficker, he's going to stop raping me. I'm going to stop rapes and abuse on me, and it'll be to someone else. So then they start being the perpetrator. So yes, they're guilty of things. We have to make sure that they face justice, but they also were a victim because of this chain. So we also give them aftercare help. So that's why our motto is break the chain. So, so the, the, the perpetrators, the, the, the kidnappers, the, the bad guys just in general, they are often, they grew up in this environment and that's the whole concept is let's break the chain. Are you able to turn any of those people? I mean, obviously in the movie, that, that guy was, was uh, I can't remember who was the character in the movie who was involved in it and then kind of yeah. turned the tides. It's amazing. So his real code name is Batman in real life, but he was Vampiro, Vampire, the, the, you know, where he changed his life. Right. He was the one exploiting them, and then he changed. As a little side note, we wanted to use Batman in the script, and DC Comics did not let us have that right. So we used Vampiro, Vampire. I thought that was a little anecdote, which is interesting. Yeah. But that's what Batman. So you're right. There are these stories of redemption. We also have had efforts years ago, we probably, I think would like to restart these, where we would go into prisons in Mexico with the staff, with law enforcement. Where we would go in and we would interview pimps who realized then what they did and they now wanted to help. So we got some intelligence from pimps in Mexican prisons, for instance, in Tijuana. They'd say, hey, here's the corner in Tijuana where the girls are being exploited. Here's the bar because they saw, they saw the light and wanted to seek redemption. So we do see that every once in a while. And I think we need to have a little more, and I'm talking about we and our organization and others, we do have to have a little more sympathy too for the victims. And that's one thing I'm a big advocate for in law enforcement in the United States, uh, certainly around the world too, but in the United States, too many police officers, sheriff's departments, law enforcement, prosecutors are still treating the victims as the perpetrators. Women are getting arrested for prostitution or they'll get being arrested for shoplifting when that was to give money to their pimp or shopping for, for drugs because they're being in trafficking situations. I'm proud of Texas. Did you realize Texas became the first state in the United States a few years ago to make the purchase of sex a felony? No, I was not aware of that. Yeah, Texas that started it all. And now a few other states yeah, have latched on. how many on. states are there now? So I have to check, but I know it's about four or five, if not more. But how about that? Because now all of a sudden, and this is where yeah. your education comes in. Okay, and again, I'll use myself. Let's say I was interested in going to a strip club or dialing up an escort online. Wait a sec. If I got caught, I could be a felon, lose my right to vote, lose my right to, you know, to work, however it is. So that's huge. And that's what we need to do. We need to put more impetus on the perpetrator than we do on the victim herself or himself. Okay, so I, I don't know why I keep asking the question I do in regard to profiles, but help people understand if, you know, what that, that, that person who's potentially buying, mm -hmm. who, again, using your own example earlier, may think that it's a consensual uh, exchange of, of, of money for sex. Right. Who, what does that profile look like? I saw a study one time, and now I'm blanking on it, but in the United States, the profile is, of the most part, the vast majority, actually a white male, six-figure income, so has means, and believes in his mind that it is a fair trade, as I mentioned earlier, meaning this is just what I want to do tonight, here's my money, she wants my money, I want her body. Now, all races are involved in this, 
And the reason I know that is oftentimes the U.S. Department of Homeland Security will lead sting operations in North Texas with area police and sheriff's offices. They'll place ads online that make it look like a girl is offering herself up through Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or that there's someone pimping out, you know, whoever, young, and these would-be predators come out of the closet, answer these ads. There was one a few months ago where South Lake, a very nice area near here, Frisco, a nice area near here, where a number of men answered ads to go to hotels where they thought they were going to be able to have sex with 11-year-old boy, 13-year-old girl. And it was all different races involved. It's this mentality of, again, it's an even trade. They're also, what's it, what's yeah. an even trade about that? When you're talking about a, a, you know, children, what is an, and, and we, we use this arbitrary age of 18 to for Correct. some reason. Right. Why, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why would they think that's a fair trade? Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned it. I have an 18 year old daughter. She's technically an adult by society standards. I see her still my little girls. I'm sure you, sure. Know, you do and you will. That is, you're right, an arbitrary age. Couple re couple reasons I would say that leads a man to do that. And my information comes from after arrest interviews that I and, and have participated in and I've seen the reports. One of two things. One is, is that an individual had some sort of sexual abuse in his life at a young age. Again, that's not excusing what he then was arrested and alleged to have done, but let's say someone's abused when they're eight years old, 10 years old. My understanding is the way then your brain kind of stops maturing sexually at that age. So then as you get older, what's going to be attractive to you, an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old? Does that make sense? That kind of physical abuse, sexual abuse, again, it, it we don't understand it. It's frightening. It's frightening. And that's what oftentimes, and that's why you're going to have, unfortunately, these hardened pedophiles who you're not really able to, to help cure. You can try to work with them, but you really have to remove them from society. But a second thing where I think we can help fight is this rampant pornography that's now, it's rampant. So pornography, internet pornography, online pornography that is violent and misogynistic and racist and more and more it's younger and younger. That is what we're seeing now. More and more pornography addicts who are attracted to younger and younger victims. And it's not enough after a while to read a magazine, to watch a video, to open up your phone and look at some of these porn sites. Your mind gets desensitized and you don't get the dopamine hit and the rush of pleasure unless it's again violent or kids or something, some crazy fetish. And then after a while, it's not enough to consume pornography. You have to go and actually be what we call a contact offender. You have to actually go to be with one of these individuals. And that's where someone would call up, again, answer an ad, 11-year-old, 13-year-old. And I'm glad you called me on that one thing. Maybe they're not the ones thinking it's a fair trade in terms of, well, this is my money and, and this is what I want. But what they're saying is, this is the only thing I'm attracted to right now because a 25-year-old doesn't do it for me, a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old. Does that make sense because of the pornography? Yeah. So that's what I'm interested in. It, it does make sense. And, and the, the human psyche in all of this, I think, is, is, is both fascinating and scary as hell at the same time. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that I'm attracted to. It has nothing to do with, you know, with, with human beings. But that doesn't mean that I go out and just take it because I, I still know the difference between right and wrong. Right. And you still have to go out and earn it, you know, and, and I, I just, I'm so, the, the whole thing just honestly has me shaking inside. Mm -hmm. 
and, and that's where I, I go back to the, the ability to compartmentalize. I don't know how you guys do it. Yeah. Um, so what do people need to be aware of from the standpoint of, you know, the, the perpetrators walking around in our neighborhoods and in our communities? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do, what do our, our kids need to know? You and I have daughters that are at, at Tennessee together. Yep. What do we need to be teaching these kids to look out for? Yeah, it's a scary time. And I tell you, whether it's our college freshmen and girls, whether it's 15 year olds, whether it's, a, it's this whole idea of if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. If someone approaches a, a young, you know, young girl, young boy to mall, hey, you've got the look. I can make you a model. I can make you a star. Here's my card. Why don't you give me a call? We'll be thinking, why would that person want to offer all those things for me? Where's that sort of quid pro quo? Secondly, and this is what I bang, you know, knock into my daughter's heads all the time, social media. There's so much danger out there on social media because of the ease with which these would-be pedophiles, predators, and groomers are operating anonymously. What I tell my daughters, and again, anyone listening here as kids and grandkids, tell them that when they're accepting these friend requests through social media, I don't care if it's Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, apps that I'm sure I don't even know about right now where your kids are, Unless you physically have met that person, know who they are, you'd have no idea whether you're chatting with a 15-year-old girl or a 65-year-old man, 18-year-old boy or a 50-year-old, right, predator, because of the ease of Photoshopping and artificial intelligence and all of that. So that's one way that our kids need to keep themselves safe. Also, they need to be careful about not putting out anything online, nothing texted, nothing sent that they would be embarrassed by if the dads found out or a grandma or law enforcement because that's all these traffickers need is one little piece of compromising information. Maybe it's a, a sext message, right? A picture, a nude photo, or even something in lingerie or a swimming suit that now with artificial intelligence and Photoshopping, I'm hearing can be changed and to make it look like it's pornographic. I mean, it's insane because that's what these traffickers look for. Then they have something on you. Aha, look what you just sent me. Do you want your pastor or priest to hear about this? Do you, do you want your teacher, your mom, your sister to see this? No, 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 no. Protect me. Okay, well, here's what you're going to have to do. And that's how they're lured into their networks. You ever find yourself in, in dealing with any of these people? Um, and I don't expect you to answer this as honestly as I'd love for you know to hear it. But do you ever find yourself in a position where um, nobody's going to miss this guy and the world would be a better place? So I'm just going to go ahead and... I mean, that's, uh, who's going to blame you? Yeah. That thought oftentimes crosses the mind, especially when sometimes in some of our countries, they sort of joke like, hey, should we just take them out? You know, (laughs) a little street justice. Because think about that. The worst of the worst of humanity. Would anybody really miss them? The way we look at it is, hey, if we can actually build a legal case to have these pimps and pedophiles arrested and thrown into jail, You've heard what happens to pedophiles in prisons, right? Mm -hmm. And that exists. And I've seen that in terms of hearing stories afterwards. So it's not as satisfying, but you get them in, let the justice system do it, take its course, and they usually get get their justice swiftly. So when you talk about Operation Underground Railroad from the standpoint of an execution um, organization, and you guys aren't out there to do any kind of vigilante justice. Correct. However, 
I'm sure that you found yourself in, in rather compromised positions at times because once, once you're discovered, assuming you are, mm -hmm. you're a threat. Correct. Has that, has that ever reared its head for you? Yeah, it has, unfortunately, a few times. And again, as we talked earlier, we do all we can to reduce risk as much as possible, knowing you can never eliminate it, working with units vetted by the U.S. government, letting the law enforcement units know, hey, just so you know, the U.S. Embassy knows we're here is a little bit of added protection, but there's no way you can reduce or eliminate risk. And we saw that. I saw that personally just a couple years ago in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, one of the most obscure places of one of the most obscure countries in a brothel in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where 10 Venezuelan women were being exploited. They had been lured from Venezuela under false pretenses of jobs, and they, they accepted it because, again, there were no options economically in their country. Well, we worked with two Haitian judges. So in that, in that country, judges would be more like a sheriff here, someone who had authority to uh, authorize an, an operation and a rescue. So we did that and we went and set up a great operation. We're able to get the girls out. Well, what happened one hour afterwards is the big brothel owner was a big gangster, was the right way to say it, organized criminal. He bought off the judges. He bought off the Haitian National Police. So for the next five days, we're trying to get the girls' passports and get them out of the country. We're running not only from the gangster and his thugs, we're running from the good guys, from the Haitian National Police. It's kind of hard to call them good guys, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. And that was the scariest time. Again, and I, I always say, look, I do not want to be accused of hyperbole or anything, but that was the time in my life, and even during the CIA, some of the stuff we did, where I didn't know if I was going to survive. I thought I was going to be killed, or I thought I was going to be thrown in a Haitian prison. And in all honesty, it was 50-50 which one would be better. How did you escape it? So we were very fortunate that we had some help with people putting us in safe houses near the airport where we were able to hide out in time to get the U.S. Embassy involved, the U.S. Department of State, and the International Organization for Migration, the IOM, who was able to get the girls temporary passports and visas to get them to the Dominican Republic. So we got them out after five days, and we were able, through the generosity of Tony Robbins, if you know him, the big influencer, he allowed us to use his plane to get him to the U.S., got him visas. But that was one that you, you poked the bear, and all of a sudden the corruption networks turned on us. And there's nothing we did wrong, it's just that's what happens in some of these countries. You can do everything right in terms of working with the unit recommended by the U.S. Embassy or other person on good authority, and they still turn on you because of the money involved, because of the corruption. Are you at liberty to carry uh, weapons to, to protect yourself, or you're just we at are the not. mercy of the... Yeah, so we will, that's one of the scariest things, right? Because you can no longer carry, and our weapons are hidden cameras, undercover microphones to get footage for documentaries and for prosecutions, but it doesn't really help you, right, if there's something goes bad. Now, how do when we... you're walking into the Roman Colosseum unarmed. Right. And remember our cover, too. We're just partiers. We're just tourists. We're middlemen, businessmen. So, you know, if they ever found a weapon on us, and sometimes we get patted down when we go to, to meet with them... So how do we uh, try to defend against that, protect ourselves, is we set up the party's operations in our place, our hotel, our Airbnb, whatever it is, so we control the terrain. We tell the traffickers, hey, we're going to have our security guys there patting you down, searching the girls, searching their purses, and if any weapon gets in, then the deal's off. You don't get a penny. 
Most of the times these guys are greedy enough where they follow the rules. A couple of times we've had people try to sneak weapons in. And then when we set up the operation with the host government, they will be armed. So they'll be playing the role of a valet guy parking the cars or a waiter or a bartender inside. So if anything can go south, they'll have the guns, but we don't. So that's what's a little scary. We go through self-defense training, Krav Maga, everything we can that, again, is not going to do anything against a gun, but it's the best we have in that situation because we are not allowed to carry in these countries. Yeah, you're, you're relying on people keeping their word right. in cultures and countries that aren't exactly known for that. And that's, is that the only time that's happened? Where, you know, that you were the situation you were just describing where somebody turned on you? Uh, no, we've had a couple times. We had one in Mexico uh, that I was involved in. We had one in Peru. And then I've heard a couple have happened in Southeast Asia. Um, we, Matt, this is a young man's game. Exactly. That's why I'm out of it now. That's why I love here in the comfy seat to do these talks. And that's why we bring in seasoned investigators. We bring in, you know, former military, those who can handle themselves overseas. Because if something goes south... Oftentimes, you're only going to have your, you know, your hands to protect yourself or your legs to get you out of the situation. But we rehearse over and over again. I, I want to say to again. And when you say you rehearse, you're talking about rehearse the operation, the how it's going to plan this is, okay. with the host government. Who's going to have guns? OK, you're going to be where. How are we exfiltrating out? We go over everything, but we abort if we don't feel that it's right. And even sometimes when we do everything right, we still get turned on because of the nature of this game. But we're willing to take calculated risks. We don't take dumb risks. I know some people now might be thinking, this sounds like the dumbest risk ever. But really, we do try to reduce risk as much as possible. But I will tell you, and again, not to get too much spiritual, but we're men and women of a lot of faith, different faiths. We'll say a prayer, and if we feel right, we'll do it because we believe that it's worth that calculated risk. But if it ever gets to a time where it's a dumb risk, we pull out, and we have, even when it means gosh, there's 60 kids and adults being trafficked. We, 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 we just, I want to save them, but something doesn't feel right. So we abort and then come to find out later why we had that feeling. Oh, did you realize that was a setup? Or do you realize we would have been chased because of the corruption? It's fascinating. Have you ever, has, it, has any of this ever led to you just questioning your faith? Has it led to just questioning humanity? Definitely question humanity for sure. When you see again, just the... But how can you question humanity and not question right, faith? Exactly. Point? Well, again, I believe in God. I believe in free agency. I believe most people use their free agency for good. Some don't. I believe that oftentimes people are doing this under addiction, right? I believe people are doing this sometimes under coercion or sometimes, you know, being blackmailed. But for me, it's look, I can only do this much, but at least I can do this much. And everyone can do something. Oftentimes we get asked, well, Operation Underground Railroad, what can, what can we do? What can I do? And we say, look, you know better than we do what you can do. Can you pray? Can you donate? Can you make connections with prosecutors and the chiefs of police? Can you serve in our, you know, our military? What can you do? But at the very end of the day, what I think is everyone can do is talk about this as an issue of trafficking, not prostitution as an issue of victims and, and victimizers. And what we have to do is focus on the demand side. Like if everyone right now in the audience, if every, if every man in this world would commit that they're never going to buy another human being, boom, that would take care of the problem right away. Mm -hmm. I know that's naive, but let's work to that. That's something I think we can do. So you, 
you referenced serving, you referenced the military, um, carry the load, you know, for, for people listening to this, you know, there's, there's a, a, an easy question, which is how in the world does this tie into carry the load? How does it tie into Memorial, Memorial Day? You were at the very first carry the load. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked about this off air and you said this, this is such an easy connection mm -hmm. between what you do with Operation Underground Railroad and Memorial Day and carry the load. Explain that to me, how the, it's such an easy connection for you. Well, our founder was from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. I was from the CIA, but the few individuals we had working with us in those early days were former military special forces, Navy SEALs, Marines, Green Berets. These men in this case, we had a couple women as well, but these men came to us saying, look, I have all these skills. I've been working for however many years for a mission. Now I'm out of the military. I still have these skills. I don't have my mission anymore. Now my mission is going to be to save kids. So in a lot of ways, Operation Underground Railroad got its start because of men and women in the military, this type of mission. And when I see what Carry the Load represents, too, and I see former military who've come together to restore the meaning of Memorial Day, this is something that has always been near and dear to my heart. Yeah, I did some crazy things with the government in Venezuela and Mexico, very dangerous places, but I was never like the brave men and women here in Iraq and Afghanistan and East Africa and elsewhere. But now I get to see the best of the best. And to have these, some of these biggest, baddest special forces be reduced to tears of joy, blubbering because we were able to save a child. We were able to get that child back to their parents. That to me is just something that I will never forget. And for those who've seen Sound of Freedom, that title for that movie came from a quote from one of our special forces supporters in 2014, after the island operation that was featured in Sound of Freedom, we're walking out, and I was to say I was in another country, another city, and, and uh, I was in Armenia, Colombia at that point, that same day, doing a rescue operation. Tim walks out, and all of a sudden, the kids in the room where they had been put were cheering, were celebrating, because again, they thought they were going to be raped and abused. Now they weren't because not only were their perpetrators arrested, one of the Child Protective Services individuals working with them said, isn't it great what those Americans did? They actually were here to save you and rescue you. They started cheering. Special Forces guy, story to goes crying and he says, Tim, do you hear that? That's the sound of freedom. So in the movie, I know it makes it sound like the Vampiro character is telling Jim Caviezel, but that was taken slightly out of context. But that is, is that the heart right? of the American military. Yeah, you know, when... When I think of, of Memorial Day and how it relates to what y'all do, it's that Memorial Day stands for much greater values than, than those of one person or, or, or one school of thought. They stand for freedom. Mm -hmm. And I make that connection between Memorial Day and Sound of Freedom very, very easily. To mm -hmm. me, it's, a, it's an easy bridge. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious, you attended the very first Carry the Load. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, you weren't yet into, if I remember correctly, you weren't yet part of uh, Operation Underground Railroad. Correct. Was there, was there any kind of a, a connection there for you? You know, going from, you know, wow, I'm, 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 I'm walking for people who made the ultimate sacrifice, mm -hmm. but they're making the ultimate sacrifice. 
for people who really need it. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I remember those early years and each year with Carry the Load, I would walk longer or you know, fill my pack heavier. And I would stop and I would look at all of the, the posters there of those killed in action and end of watch. And you know, I want to make sure no one thinks I'm making an equivalent for those who gave the ultimate sacrifice and those who are in, still alive in human trafficking situations. But in recent years, as I'm walking and you know, it's, it's painful. I mean, it's walking, it's overnight, it's a long time. What I do is I think, my worst day, the most pain that I'm in right now, and I see the men and women walking on the Katy Trail and they're loaded down and you can just tell the pain they're going through, that is light years better than the day that any of these trafficking victims are having. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And that's what I try to do. And in my workouts and in other things, whenever I get the pain, I try to think, look, this is what we're trying to do to help those for whom no one is looking. And that's one of the things with Operation Underground Railroad. We love and respect the men and women of law enforcement who are doing all they can with, with limited resources. But we want to be that group that's willing to go into any corner of the world, into the darkest corners of the world, and look for those who have fallen outside of the jurisdiction of the U.S. government or outside of governments that aren't looking for them. That's what we want to do. And I try to channel that each year in Memorial Day with Carry the Load and trying to push myself even farther, give thanks for the blessings I have, but remember not only those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, but those who are still in really conditions of hell today. Man, I, I could sit here and talk to you all day. There's so many more questions you know, that I want to ask. There's so many more rabbit holes that I want to go <laughs> down. I, if you could finish us up with what do you want people to take away from our conversation? If they hear nothing else, what is the one nugget that you want them to walk away with? I would say just recognize this for what it is. Just know that this exists. This isn't a figment of the imagination. This isn't a conspiracy. This isn't a right versus left, a political issue. This is human slavery. Neither is this the world's oldest profession. Neither is this just Pretty Woman and Julia Roberts, right? We've talked about it a few times. Just recognizing that this exists, that this is human trafficking, that is a huge step forward. And that we are part of the problem right now, too, if it happens in our backyard and we look the other way. Exactly. Once you see, you can't unsee. Once you know, you can't unknow. Is it Edmund Burke, the only thing for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do nothing? So let's do something. So that's the first thing I would say. Then the second thing along the lines of let's do something, maybe everyone look inside yourselves now. What can you do? Do you have kids and grandkids you need to educate about this? Social media, uh, grooming, uh, different tactics. Is this something where you can support either our organization, carry the load, um, other groups out there who are supporting our men and women in the armed services and veterans or fighting human trafficking? Are you people of spirituality? Can you pray? If not, that's all right. Can you send up good thoughts, well wishes? Can you do something to make connections? Can you post on social media? I am an optimist by nature. This isn't going to end overnight, but I do believe we can end this in our lifetimes. We can end human trafficking, but it starts with awareness. It starts with education. It starts with fighting demand. And I'm just grateful, Todd, for this opportunity here to appear on this podcast and to talk about this issue. And I'd love to come back sometime and we'll go down through some of those rabbit holes as well. Oh, be careful. I may take <laughs> you up on that. 
Matt, thank you very much, man. I really, again, I, I'm, I'm humbled that you would take this much time to sit down. Y'all do great things, and I, I want to encourage everybody to go look it up. I mean, the, the, the logo's awesome. I, I didn't until you, you yeah. made that connection for me. Now it makes sense, but Operation Underground Railroad. Yeah. So. And we try to, OURrescue.org is the website, OURrescue.org to learn a little bit more about our operations. But thank you, sir. Matt, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks a lot. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.